Section 22 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rositer Johnson, and John Rudd. Norman Conquest of England, Battle of Hastings, E.D. 1066, Part 1, by Sir Edward Shepherd Creasy. Toward the end of the reign of Edward the Confessor, the claims of three rival competitors for the English crown were persistently urged. These claimants were Harold Hardrada, King of Norway, whose claim was based upon an alleged compact of King Hardicanute with King Magnus, Harold's predecessor, Duke William of Normandy, and the Saxon Harold, son of Godwin, Earl of Wessex. This Harold, born about 1022, became Earl of East Anglia about 1045, was banished with his father by Edward the Confessor in 1051, and restored with his father in 1052, succeeded his father as Earl of Wessex in 1053, relinquishing the earldom of East Anglia, and from 1053 to 1066 was chief minister of Edward. Harold, probably in 1064, being shipwrecked on the coast of Normandy, became a guest and virtual prisoner of William, Duke of Normandy, by whom the Saxon was forced to take an oath that he would marry William's daughter and assist him in obtaining the crown of England. William then allowed Harold to return to his country. Upon the death of Edward the Confessor, January 5th, 1066, an assembly of Tains and prelates and leading citizens of London declared that Harold should be their king. His accession as Harold II dates from the day after Edward's death. Harold justified himself on the ground that his oath to William of Normandy was taken under constraint. William published his protest against what he called the bad faith of Harold and proclaimed his purpose to assert his right by the sword. He also obtained the countenance of the Pope, whose authority Harold refused to recognize. A banner, blessed by the Pope for the invasion of England, was sent to William from the Holy See, and the clergy of the continent upheld his enterprise as being the cause of God. Thus supported by the spiritual power, then wielding vast influence, William proceeded to gather the most remarkable and formidable armament which the Western nations had witnessed. With this following he entered upon an undertaking, the speedy and complete success of which, in the single and decisive Battle of Hastings, was fruitful in historic results such as are seldom so traceable to definite causes and events. No one who appreciates the influence of England and her empire upon the destinies of the world will ever rank that victory as one of secondary importance. All the adventurous spirits of Christendom flocked to the Holy Banner, under which Duke William, the most renowned knight and sagest general of the age, promised to lead them to glory and wealth in the fair domains of England. His army was filled with the chivalry of continental Europe, all eager to save their souls by fighting at the Pope's bidding, eager to signalize their valor in so great an enterprise, and eager also for the pay and plunder which William liberally promised. But the Normans themselves were pith, and the flower of the army, and William himself was the strongest, the sagest, and the fiercest spirit of them all. Throughout the spring and summer of 1066, 
all the seaports of Normandy, Picardy, and Brittany rang with the busy sound of preparation. On the opposite side of the channel, King Harold collected the army and the fleet with which he hoped to crush the southern invaders. But the unexpected attack of King Harold Hardrada of Norway upon another part of England disconcerted the skillful measures which the Saxon had taken against the menacing armada of Duke William. Harold's renegade brother, Earl Tostig, had excited the Norse king to this enterprise, the importance of which has naturally been eclipsed by the superior interest attached to the victorious expedition of Duke William, but which on a scale of grandeur which the Scandinavian ports had rarely, if ever, before witnessed. Hardrada's fleet consisted of two hundred warships and three hundred other vessels. All of the best warriors of Norway were in his host. He sailed first to the Orkneys, where many of the islanders joined him, and then to Yorkshire. After a severe conflict near York, he completely rooted Earls Edwin and Morcar, the governors of Northumbria. The city of York opened its gates, and all the country, from the time to the Humber, submitted to him. The tidings of the defeat of Edwin and Morcar compelled Harold to leave his position on the southern coast and move instantly into the Norwegians. By a remarkably rapid march, he reached Yorkshire in four days, and took the Norse king and his confederates by surprise. Nevertheless, the battle which ensued, and which was fought near Stamford Bridge, was desperate and was long doubtful. Unable to break the ranks of the Norwegian phalanx by force, Harold at length tempted them to quit their close order by a pretend flight. Then the English columns burst in among them, and a carnage ensued, the extent of which may be judged of by the exhaustion and inactivity of Norway for a quarter of a century afterward. King Harold Hadrada, and all of the flower of his nobility, perished on the 25th of September, 1066, at Stamford Bridge a battle which was a flodden to Norway. Harold's victory was splendid, but he had bought it dearly by the fall of many of his best officers and men, and still more dearly by the opportunity which Duke William had gained of effecting an unopposed landing on the Sussex coast. The whole of William's shipping had assembled at the mouth of the Deve, a little river between the Sina and the Orna, as early as the middle of August. The army which he had collected amounted to fifty thousand knights and ten thousand soldiers of inferior degree. Many of the knights were mounted, but many must have served on foot, as it is hardly possible to believe that William could have found transports for the conveyance of fifty thousand war-horses across the channel. For a long time the winds were adverse, and the duke employed the interval that passed before he could set sail in completing the organization in and improving the discipline of his army, which he seems to have brought into the same state of perfection as was seven centuries and a half afterward the boast of another army assembled on the same coast, and which Napoleon designed for a similar descent upon England. It was not till the approach of the equinox that the wind veered from the northeast to the west and gave the Normans an opportunity of quitting the wary shores of the Deve. They eagerly embarked and set sail, but the wind soon freshened to a gale and drove them along the French coast to St. Valery, where the greater part of them found shelter. But many of their vessels were wrecked, and the whole coast of Normandy was strewn with the bodies of the drowned. William's army began to grow discouraged and averse to the enterprise, which the very elements thus seemed to fight against. 
though in reality the northeast wind which had cooped them so long at the mouth of the Dive, and the western gale which had forced them into st valery were the best possible friends to the invaders they prevented the normans from crossing the channel until the saxon king and his army of defence had been called away from the sussex coast to encounter harold hardrada in yorkshire and also until a formidable english fleet which by king harold's orders had been cruising in the channel to intercept the normans had been obliged to disperse temporarily for the purpose of refitting and taking in fresh stores of provisions duke william used every expedient to reanimate the drooping spirits of his men at st valery and at last he caused the body of the patron saint of the place to be exhumed and carried in solemn procession while the whole assemblage of soldiers mariners and appurtenant priests implored the saint's intercession for a change of wind that very night the wind veered and enabled the medieval agamemnon to quit his aulus with full sails and a following southern breeze the norman armada left the french shores and steered for england the invaders crossed at undefended sea and found an undefended coast it was in pevensey bay in sussex at bulverheath between the castle of pevensey and hastings that the last conquerors of this island landed on the twenty ninth of september ten sixty six harold was at york rejoicing over his recent victory which had delivered england from her ancient scandinavian foes and resettling the government of the counties which harold hadrada had overrun when the tidings reached him that duke william of normandy and his host had landed on the sussex shore harold instantly hurried southward to meet this long-expected enemy the severe loss which his army had sustained in the battle with the norwegians must have made it impossible for many of his veteran troops to accompany him in his forced march to london and thence to sussex he halted at the capital only six days and during that time gave orders for collecting forces from the southern and midland counties and also directed his fleet to reassemble off the sussex coast harold was well received in london and his summons to arms was promptly obeyed by citizen by thane by sockman and by curl for he had shown himself during his brief reign a just and wise king affable to all men active for the good of his country and in the words of the old historian sparing himself from no fatigue by land or by sea he might have gathered as much more numerous army than that of william but his recent victory had made him overconfident and he was irritated by the reports of the country being ravaged by the invaders as soon therefore as he collected a small army in london he marched off toward the coast pressing forward as rapidly as his men could traverse surrey in sussex in the hope of taking the normans unawares as he had recently by a similar forced march succeeded in surprising the norwegians but he had now to deal with a foe equally brave with harold hodrada and far more skilful and wary the old norman chroniclers describe the preparations of william on his landing with a graphic vigour which would be wholly lost by transfusing their racy norman couplets and terse latin prose into the current style of modern history it is best to follow them closely though at the expense of much quaintness and occasional uncouthness of expression they tell us how duke william's own ship was the first of the norman fleet it was called the mora and was the gift of his duchess matilda on the head of the ship in the front 
which mariners call the prow, there was a brazen child bearing an arrow with a bended bow. His face was turned toward England, and thither he looked, as though he was about to shoot. The breeze came soft and sweet, and the sea was smooth for their landing. The ships ran on dry land, and each ranged by the other side. There you might see the good sailors, the sergeants and squires, sally forth and unload the ships, cast the anchors, haul the ropes, bear out shields and saddles, and land the war-horses and their palfreys. The archers came forth, and touched land the first, each with his bow strung, and with his quiver full of arrows slung at his side. All were shaven and shorn, and all clad in short garments, ready to attack, to shoot, to wheel about and skirmish. All stood well equipped, and of good courage for the fight, and they scoured the whole shore, but found not an armed man there. After the archers had thus gone forth, the knights landed, all armed, with their hauberks on, their shields slung at their necks, and their helmets laced. They formed together on the shore, each armed and mounted on his war-horse. All had their swords girded on, and rode forward into the country with their lances raised. Then the carpenters landed, who had great axes in their hands, and planes and adzes hung at their sides. They took counsel together, and sought for a good spot to place a castle on. They had brought with them in the fleet three wooden castles from Normandy, in pieces, all ready for framing together, and they took the materials of one of these out of the ships, all shaped and pierced to receive the pins which they had brought, cut and ready in large barrels, and before evening had set in, they had finished a good fort on the English ground, and there they placed their stores, and then ate and drank enough, and were right glad that they were ashore. When Duke William himself landed, as he stepped on the shore, he slipped and fell forward upon his two hands. Forthwith all raised a loud cry of distress. An evil sign, said they, is here. But he cried out lustily, See, my lords, by the splendor of God, I have taken possession of England with both my hands. It is now mine, and what is mine is yours. The next day they marched along the seashore to Hastings. Near that place the duke fortified a camp, and set up the two other wooden castles. The forages and those who looked out for booty seized all the clothing and provisions they could find, lest what had been brought by the ships should fail them, and the English were to be seen fleeing before them, driving off their cattle, and quitting their houses. Many took shelter in burying places, and even there they were in grievous alarm. Besides the marauders from the Norman camp, strong bodies of cavalry were detached by William into the country, and these, when Harold and his army made their rapid march from London southward, fell back in good order upon the main body of the Normans, and reported that the Saxon king was rushing on like a madman. But Harold, when he found that his hopes of surprising his adversary were vain, changed his tactics. He halted about seven miles from the Norman lines. He sent some spies, who spoke the French language, to examine the number and preparations of the enemy, who on their return related with astonishment that there were more priests in William's camp than there were fighting men in the English army. 
they had mistaken for priests all the Norman soldiers, who had short hair and shaven chins, for the English laymen were then accustomed to wear long hair and mustaches. Harold, who knew the Norman usages, smiled at their words, and said, "'Those whom you have seen in such numbers are not priests, but stout soldiers, and they will soon make us feel.' Harold's army was far inferior in number to that of the Normans, and some of his captains advised him to retreat upon London and lay waste the country, so as to starve down the strength of the invaders. The policy thus recommended was unquestionably the wisest, for the Saxon fleet had now reassembled and intercepted all William's communications with Normandy, and as soon as his stores of provisions were exhausted, he must have moved forward upon London, where Harold, at the head of the full military strength of the kingdom, could have defied his assault, and probably might have witnessed his rival's destruction by famine and disease without having to strike a single blow. But Harold's bold blood was up, and his kindly heart could not endure to inflict on the South Saxon subjects even the temporary misery of wasting the country. He would not burn houses and villages, neither would he take away the substance of his people. Harold's brothers, Goethe and Luthwein, were with him in the camp, and Gerth endeavoured to persuade him to absent himself from the battle. The incident shows how well devised had been William's scheme of binding Harold by the oath of the holy relics. "'My brother,' said the young Saxon prince, "'thou canst not deny that either by force or free will thou hast made Duke William an oath on the bodies of saints. Why then risk thyself in the battle with a perjury upon thee? To us we have sworn nothing.' This is a holy and a just war. We are fighting for our country. Leave us then alone to fight this battle, and he who has the rights will win. Harold replied that he would not look on while others risked their lives for him. Men would hold him a coward, and blame him for sending his best friends where he dared not go himself. He resolved, therefore, to fight, and to fight in person but he was still too good a general to be the assailant in the action, and he posted his army, with great skill, along a ridge of rising ground which opened southward, and was covered on the back by an extensive wood. He strengthened his position by a palisade of stakes and osier hurdles, and there he said he would defend himself against whoever should seek him. The ruins of Battle Abbey at this hour attest to the place where Harold's army was posted, and the high altar of the abbey stood on the very spot where Harold's own standard was planted during the fight, and where the carnage was the thickest. Immediately after his victory, William vowed to build an abbey on the site, and a fair and stately pile soon rose there. For many ages the monks prayed and said masses for the souls of those who were slain in the battle whence the abbey took its name. Before that time the place was called Senlac. Little of the ancient edifice now remains, but it is easy to trace in the park in the neighborhood the scenes of the chief incidents in the action, and it is impossible to deny the generalship shown by Harold in stationing his men, especially when we bear in mind that he was deficient in cavalry, the arm in which his adversary's main strength consisted. William's only chance of safety lay in bringing on a general engagement, and he joyfully advanced his army from their camp on the hill over Hastings, nearer to the Saxon position. But he neglected no means of weakening his opponent, 
and renewed his summonses and demands on Harold with an ostentatious air of sanctity and moderation. A monk named Hugo Megro had come in William's name to call upon the Saxon king to do one of three things, either to resign his royalty in favor of William, or to refer to the arbitration of the Pope to decide which of the two ought to be king, or let it be determined by the issue of a single combat. Harold abruptly replied, I will not resign my title, I will not refer it to the Pope, nor will I accept the single combat. He was far from being deficient in bravery, but he was no more at liberty to stake the crown, which he had received from a whole people, in the chance of a duel, than to deposit it in the hands of an Italian priest. William, not at all ruffled by the Saxon's refusal, but steadily pursuing the course of his calculated measures, sent the Norman monk again, after giving him these instructions. Go and tell Harold that if he will keep his former compact with me, I will leave him to all the country which is beyond the Humber, and will give his brother Gert all the lands which Godwin held. If he still persists in refusing my offers, then thou shalt tell him before all his people that he is a perjurer and a liar, that he and all who shall support him are excommunicated by the mouth of the Pope, and that the bull to that effect is in my hands. Hugo Maigro delivered this message in a solemn tone, and the Norman Chronicle says that at the word excommunication the English chiefs looked at one another, as if some greater danger were impending. One of them spoke as follows. We must fight, whatever may be the danger to us, for what we have to consider is not whether we shall accept and receive a new lord, as if our king were dead, the case is quite otherwise. The Norman has given our lands to his captains, to his knights, to all his people, the greater part of whom already done homage to him for them. They will all look for their gift if their duke become our king, and he himself is bound to deliver up to them our goods, our wives, and our daughters. All is promised to them beforehand. They come not only to ruin us, but to ruin our descendants also, and to take from us the country of our ancestors. And what shall we do? Whither shall we go, when we have no longer a country? The English promised, by a unanimous oath, to make neither peace nor truce nor treaty with the invader, but to die or drive away the Normans. The 13th of October was occupied in these negotiations, and at night, the duke announced to his men that the next day would be the day of battle. That night is said to have been passed by the two armies in very different manners. The Saxon soldiers spent it in joviality, singing their national songs, and draining huge horns of ale and wine round their campfires. The Normans, when they had looked to their arms and horses, confessed themselves to the priests, with whom their camp was thronged, and received the sacrament by thousands at a time. On Saturday, the 14th of October, was fought the great battle. It is not difficult to compose a narrative of its principal incidents from the historical information which we possess, especially if aided by an examination of the ground. But it is far better to adopt the spirit-stirring words of the old chroniclers, who wrote while the recollections of the battle were yet fresh and while the feelings and prejudices of the combatants yet glowed in the bosoms of living men. 
Robert Wesa, the Norman poet who presented his Roman de Rue to Henry II, is the most picturesque and animated of the old writers, and from him we can obtain a more vivid and full description of the conflict than even the most brilliant romance writer of the present time can supply. We have also an antique memorial of the battle, more to be relied on than either chronicler or poet, and which confirms Wace's narrative remarkably in the celebrated Bayou Tapestry, which represents the principal scenes of Duke William's expedition and of the circumstances connected with it, in minute, though occasionally grotesque details, and which was undoubtedly the production of the same age in which the battle took place. Whether we admit or reject the legend that Queen Matilda and the ladies of her court wrought it with their own hands in honor of the royal conqueror, let us therefore suffer the old Norman chronicler to transport our imaginations to the fair Sussex scenery northwest of Hastings, as it appeared on that October morning. The Norman host is pouring forth from its tents, and each troop and each company is forming fast under the banner of its leader. The masses have been sung, which were finished betimes in the morning. The barons have all assembled round Duke William and the duke has ordered that the army shall be formed in three divisions so as to make the attack upon the saxon position in three places the duke stood on a hill where he could best see his men the barons surrounded him and he spake to them proudly he told them how he trusted them and how all that he gained should be theirs and how sure he felt of the conquest for in all the world there was not so brave an army or such good men and true as were then forming around him. Then they cheered him in turn and cried out, You will not see one coward. None here will fear to die for love of you if need be. And he answered them, I thank you well. For God's sake, spare not. Strike hard at the beginning. Stay not to take spoil. All the booty shall be in common, and there will be plenty for everyone. There will be no safety in asking quarter or in flight. The English will never love or spare a Norman. Felons they were, and felons they are. False they were, and false they will be. Show no weakness toward them, for they will have no pity on you. Neither the coward for running well, nor the bold man for smiting well, will be the better liked by the English." nor will any be the more spared on either account. You may fly to the sea, but you can fly no farther. You will find neither ships nor bridge there. There will be no sailors to receive you, and the English will overtake you there and slay you in your shame. More of you will die in flight than in battle. Then, as flight will not secure you, fight and you will conquer. I have no doubt of the victory. We are come for glory. The victory is in our hands, and we may make sure of obtaining it if we so please. As the Duke was speaking thus, and would yet have spoken more, William Fitzoburn rode up with his horse, all coated with iron. Sire, said he, we tarry here too long. Let us all arm ourselves. Alons, alons. Then all went to their tents, and armed themselves as best they might and the duke was very busy giving every one his orders and he was courteous to all the vassals giving away many arms and horses to them when he prepared to arm himself he called first for his hauberk 
and a man brought it on his arm and placed it before him. But in putting his head in it, to get it on, he unawares turned it the wrong way, with the back part in front. He soon changed it, but when he saw that those who stood by were sorely alarmed, he said, I have seen many a man who, if such a thing had happened to him, would not have borne arms or entered the field the same day. But I never believed in omens, and I never will. I trust in God, for he does in all things his pleasure, and ordains what is to come to pass according to his will. I have never liked fortune-tellers, nor believed in diviners, but I commend myself to Our Lady. Let not this mischance give you trouble. The hauberk, which was turned wrong, and then set right by me, signifies that a change will arise out of the matter which are now stirring. You shall see the name of Duke changed into King. Yea, a King shall I be, who hitherto have been but Duke. Then he crossed himself, and straightway took his hauberk, stooped his head, and put it on aright, and laced his helmet, and girt on his sword, which Avarlay brought him. Then the duke called for his good horse. Better could not be found. It had been sent him by a king of Spain out of very great friendship. Neither arms nor the press of fighting men did it fear if its lord spurred it on. Walter Gifford brought it. The duke stretched out his hand, took the reins, put foot in stirrup, and mounted. And the good horse pawed, pranced, reared himself up, and curveted. The Viscount of Doris saw how the Duke bore himself in arms, and said to his people that were around him, Never have I seen a man so fairly armed, nor one who rode so gallantly, or bore his arms, or became his hauberk so well. Neither any of who bore his lance so gracefully, or sat his horse and managed him so nobly. There is no such knight under heaven. A fair count he is, and fair king he will be. Let him fight, and he shall overcome. Shame be to the man who shall fail him. Then the duke called for the standard which the pope had sent him, and he who bore it, having unfolded it, the duke took it and called to Raoul de Conscious. Bear my standard, said he, for I would not but do you right. By right and by ancestry your line and standard-bearers of Normandy, and very good knights have they all been. But Raoul said that he would serve the duke that day in other guise, and would fight the English with his hand as long as life should last. Then the duke bade Walter Gifford bear the standard, but he was old and white-headed, and bade the duke give the standard to some younger and stronger man to carry. Then the duke said fiercely, By the splendor of God, my lords, I think you mean to betrayal and fail me in this great need. Sire, said Gifford, not so. We have done no treason, nor do I refuse from any felony toward you. But I have to lead a great chivalry, both hired men and the men of my fiefth. Never had I such good means of serving you as I now have, and if God please, I will serve you. If need be, I will die for you, and will give my own heart for yours. By my faith, quoth the duke, I always loved thee, and now I love thee more. If I survive this day, thou shalt be better for it all thy days. Then he called out a knight, whom he had heard much praised, Tostein's Fitzrule Blanc by name, whose abode was at Beckencaw. To him he delivered the standard, and Tostein's took it right cheerfully, and bowed low to him in thanks, and bore it gallantly with good heart. His kindred still have quittance of all service for their inheritance on this account, 
and their heirs are entitled so to hold their inheritance forever. William sat on his war-horse and called out Rogier, whom they called de Montgomery. I rely much on you, said he. Lead your men thitherward and attack them from that side. William, the son of Osborne, the seneschal, a right good vassal, shall go with you and help in the attack, and you shall have the men of Bouillon and Poy and all my soldiers. Elaine Fergot and Amory shall attack the other side. They shall lead the Poitevins and the Bretons and all the barons of Maine, and I, with my own great men, my friends and kindred, will fight in the middle throng, where the battle shall be the hottest. The barons and knights and men-at-arms were all now armed. The foot-soldiers were well equipped, each bearing bow and sword. On their heads were caps, and to their feet were bound buskins. Some had good hides, which they had bound round their bodies, and many were clad in frocks, and had quivers and bows hung to their girdles. The knights had hauberks and swords, boots of steel and shining helmets, shields at their necks, and in their hands lances and all had their cognizances, so that each might know his fellow, and Norman might not strike Norman, nor Frenchman kill his countrymen by mistake. Those on foot led the way, with serried ranks, bearing their bows. The knights rode next, supporting the archers from behind. Thus both horse and foot kept their course, and order of march as they began, in close ranks, at a gentle pace, that the one might not pass or separate from the other. All went firmly and compactly, bearing themselves gallantly. End of section 22